I realized there had to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen, Some future psychologists will probably come up with a reason for why these ancient academics and fossilized physicists and nasty, noisy negativists can't wrap their head around the idea that, gee, maybe there's somebody coming here. I was giving a lecture, and somebody in the back row, pretty big hall, gets up and moves over to the wall, starts moving forward. Oh, boy. And I'm lecturing, and I'm thinking, gee, I wonder if this guy is up here will stop bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy thought. I mean, uh, who knows what's going on. I contacted her a few months ago because there was a comment somewhere where she had said she never met a scientist who believed in UFOs. So I called her and got her. <laughs> introduced yourself, her. right? <laughs> yeah, I introduced myself. So now she's met one. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! With your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com. With the ninth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. That's right, folks. It is time once again for our traditional visit to the paranormal North Pole. Before we dig into this year's festivities, I want to take a moment, of course, and wish all of the BOA Audio listeners around the world a very Merry Christmas, and a Happy Holiday Season. With that said, fire up the Yule Log, folks, because it's time for the BOA Audio Holiday Special. This year's festivities include Stan's take on where the public's perception of the UFO phenomenon is today, and the recent congressional hearing on astrobiology as well as popular standards like Stan's response to the latest antics of the nasty, noisy negativists who do their research by proclamation rather than investigation. That really is just a small portion of this year's special, because in keeping with our theme of years past, we devote the vast majority of this year's holiday special to listener-submitted questions for the father of modern-day ufology. And, per usual, they cover a vast array of paranormal and scientific topics, including Bigfoot, anti-gravity, the private space industry, crop circles, disclosure, the future of NASA, key Canadian UFO events and prominent flying saucer trace cases, drone technology, Stan's work on nuclear propulsion, MIBs, 
and Stan's life before he first stumbled upon the UFO Enigma. Plus, of course, tons and tons more kudos to the BOA audio listeners who submitted so many thought-provoking questions. Altogether, this is, of course, a signature episode in any BOA audio season designed to accompany you while shoveling your driveway or to offer an escape from the endless stream of holiday music that is likely assaulting your ears. It is the ninth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, please allow me to take a moment and provide you with a little background on him. Stanton Friedman received B.S. and M.S. degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced, classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the UN, and has been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work, analysis of the Delphos, Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate, cultists. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com. Pretty simple, all one word, stantonfriedman.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 12, 2013, Stanton Friedman on the ninth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the ninth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Every year I struggle with the introduction of this show. It is the signature program of this series, really. Uh, it is just one of my most proudest achievements to put together this holiday special. Nine years running with the incomparable Stanton Friedman. And I could heap platitudes upon this guy all day. He knows how much he means to me. He's an amazing guy. When I first started out, I did the slide projector at his, at his conference, uh, at the X conference in 2004. And then down the line, I introduced him at the Exeter event maybe five or six, seven years later. So the levels of interaction with Stan Friedman, <laughs> how I know I'm making a, an impact in this field. That's how much I really uh, treasure this guy. <laughs> He is an icon, and uh, he is really unparalleled, not just in the world of ufology, but in the entire genre of the paranormal. And uh, I can't, like I said, I, I could heap platitudes upon him all day, but this is the holiday special. We want to celebrate and get down to business and uh, do these questions and catch up with uh, the father of modern-day ufology, Stan Friedman. Let me do the plugs here. Of course, the resume is amazing. He's a nuclear physicist. He spent 40-plus years looking into the UFO phenomenon. He's the author of Crash at Corona. Top Secret Magic, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience with Kathy Martin, 
Flying Saucers in Science, which I have to say is the magnum opus, as he calls it. It is fantastic. This is the book you want to get, folks, for Christmas gifts right now. That is something you want to give to the noisy uncle who's always giving you crap around the dinner table uh, on Christmas Eve. Give him Flying Saucers in Science. Shut him up for next year's Christmas. And, of course, he also wrote Science Was Wrong with Kathy Martin. And you can find out all about him at StantonFriedman.com. It is my great pleasure, sir, to welcome you back to the holiday special here on BOA Audio. I'm glad to still be alive so I can be on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to save this for the end of the program, but you and I both have reason to stick around for one more year because next year will be the 10th annual, and that's going to be something big. So hopefully we can (laughs) both be here for that. But it is the ninth annual this year, and, uh, you know, life is sometimes like a movie. I was thinking the other day that we were setting up the interview, and you were between Iguaza Falls, Brazil, which you were uh, attending for the, the World UFO Forum and Ufology. You had a little respite back uh, at home, and then you were on your way to Tampere, Finland. So I caught you right at the right time, and just amazing. I know it's not every weekend for you, but still, that's that's <laughs> quite a journey to make uh, at the end of November. Uh, a lot of frequent flyer miles, I'll tell you. It was 85 degrees in uh, Brazil, because it's summer down there, and we had snow in Tampere. <laughs> <laughs> and it was four flights each way to get to Tampere in a four-day period. Oh, my God. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> You think they didn't have have the, uh, the the travel more improved by now? What was what you know? You've been doing this obviously for forty plus years. I guess I've talked often about the malaise of ufology. I was thinking today uh, as I was looking at sort of this this angle I wanted to take with you when we first started. Uh, it feels like the newness of all this is worn off for for the human race in a way. I mean, we were talking about forty, fifty, sixty plus years uh, that that flying saucers and UFOs have been a part of of our yeah. culture, let's say. Uh, but you know, you 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 travel the roads. You you do these things. Uh, you know, you do these events in Brazil and Finland, and you've seen it sort of evolve over the years. So I guess what's your what's your take right now on the temperature of all this? What are people thinking? You know, what's the, what's the mood? I guess is the best way to put it. Well, good question. Uh, what I have detected is that there seems to be a general generally greater acceptance among media people than others. There are exceptions, but. Uh, it's like because of Kepler and all the news that goes with the satellite that, what do you know, there are other planets out there. We're not the only ones. Uh, some people have trouble with that, but, uh, you know, uh, there's – and the most common comment I get is that, well, surely we're not the only life out there. It's a big place and all the rest of that. So there has been less resistance, I think, and also – uh, I hate to say this, but some people recognize that the government's been lying to us about various and sundry things. I mean, that was unthinkable back in the 40s. Of course you can trust the government, but now uh, with Snowden and all the rest of that stuff, uh, the government no longer has a reputation for being very straight about things. Uh, and... Uh, that's helped the cause in the sense that when I talk about a cosmic Watergate, people know what I mean. Right. Uh, and it, it's easy to demonstrate that. And uh, <laughs> this year I've, I've made a point of talking about uh, the SETI uh, characters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, silly effort to investigate and stuff. And my favorite target these days is Dr. 
uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, yeah, he talks a lot, that guy. He has a lot to say, doesn't he? Yes, he does have a lot to say. He's got a good sense of humor. He's good on the stage. But he doesn't know anything about UFOs or interstellar travel or government cover-up. And I've been using some of what he has said as an example of that. I mean, one of the silliest things I've heard is that the proof that the government can't keep secrets is how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. Well, that's a very clever remark, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it, it's it's much less clever. Well, none of them are clever, but uh, <laughs> Seth Shostak said that um, the reason we know the government can't keep secrets is how bad a job FEMA did on Katrina and how poorly the post offices operated. And where are these guys coming from? Are they really unaware of CIA, DIA, NRO, NSA? Everybody's aware of the NSA these days. Exactly. There used to be no such agency or never says anything, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and so uh, I'm appalled. And I just saw, I don't know if you've heard about the panel on astrogeology or astrobiology. Yeah, it happened last week. They were looking at how to, yeah. uh, what the status is of finding sort of microbial life in space, right? Well, what they're looking at, there were three people who testified, all very well qualified, one from MIT and one the uh, uh, from the Library of Congress and another from uh, NASA. And the whole point is that, you know, because of Kepler, we've located a lot of planets out there, and some of these planets are even in the, uh, you know, the nice place where maybe they could have life. And so we're going to be doing lots of work with the telescopes we have and with new ones coming up to find out about the gaseous composition of the atmospheres around those planets because, gee, that might mean there's life there. Of course, it doesn't tell you whether it's intelligent life or it's long gone or anything mm. else, but it's exciting science. And I don't doubt that, but I say, how the heck can you talk about life in the universe and leave out all the evidence that indicates some of it's coming here. I mean, talk about blinders on. Mm, yeah. And th these are bright people, and it's interesting science. I don't deny that. I mean, I'm still a scientist. But if your goal is to find out about life in the universe, surely you cannot just say there's no evidence of anybody coming here. As a matter of fact, one of the participants, uh, Sarah Seeger, Dr. Sarah Seeger from MIT, Planetary Physics and Regular Physics, uh, she, she's up there. She's got one heck of a resume. I've looked at it. Um, she made a side comment that uh, we're doing real science. We're not chasing after UFOs. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, I have to say that I contacted her a few months ago because there was a comment somewhere where she had said she'd never met a scientist who believed in UFOs. So I called her and got her. And <laughs> introduced yourself, her. right? <laughs> yeah, I introduced myself. So now she's met one. And so I also asked if I could send her my book, Flying Saucers and Science, and she said yes. And uh, I haven't heard back from her, so <laughs> and I did. And uh, I'm reminded when I sent Seth Shostak a copy of my book, this is after we'd met and debated and so forth, uh, and with his permission, I don't drop things on people. Why waste a good book, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, many months later, on Coast to Coast, uh, somehow it, the question came up. I didn't hear it. He said he still he had my book. It was on his nightstand. He didn't say he'd read it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, 
it, some future psychologist will probably come up with a reason for why these ancient academics and fossilized physicists and nasty, noisy negativists can't wrap their head around the idea that, gee, maybe there's somebody coming here. Since we know how to get there, and that's one of the big sticking points, is that the, uh, the astronomers in particular will tell you, oh, you can't get here from there. Yeah, that's all they ever say. Yeah, and Dr. Tyson said on that Peter Jennings mockumentary back in 2005 that our fastest craft would take 70,000 years to get to the nearest star, which it isn't even heading toward. And we scientists like our data a lot sooner than that. Now, of course, he didn't mention, oh, it doesn't have a propulsion system on it. It wasn't intended to go anywhere except to fall off the solar system, so to speak. Mm, yeah. And, you know, uh, that's one of those ridiculous comments. Uh, I could tell you that, you know how long it takes to go around the Earth? Three years. Magellan set the pace. Of course, that was 1523, and the space station does it in 90 minutes today. Exactly. Well, these, uh, these astrobiologists, uh, they're like people at the zoo who are fascinated by the ants on the ground. They're missing, they're missing the real show here. Well, I like that. I, I might use that. I feel free. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be proud to have added to the lexicon. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, we're, we're, the, the media attitude's changing, but these, these, uh, as you say, the nasty, noisy negativists are, they're, they're trying to be more clever than ever, so. Well, at least, now, I, I will say this. I read the three papers given by these three people who testified. They were on the internet. And none of them talk about UFOs. That's a given. <laughs> but none of them also talk about, uh, the radio telescope stuff. It's like maybe they're beginning to realize that the notion we should listen for signals from somebody who's using our technology. We, our first long-distance radio was uh, 1901, Marconi. And so it takes a while for a signal to get here. So how, why would they use uh, technology appropriate to us when they've probably been out there for thousands or millions of years? And you know, something nobody brings up, except me, is that people out, I'll say people, uh, generic term, ETIs out there, could have done their Kepler measurements a thousand or a million years ago. Hmm. They act like, well, nobody else could have learned any of this stuff, you know. And so that, that's kind of weird. Obviously, they could have learned. We, we're beginners, it's. I think it's a psychological thing where, yeah. uh, you know, Copernicus science understands and believes that, uh, you know, that the Earth is in the center of the universe, but the human race cannot get over the fact that the human race is not the center of the universe. Well, there's uh, the, <laughs> the fundamentalist saying that uh, all the intelligent life in the universe is on planet Earth. <laughs> That's what he said. That's depressing. Uh, uh, well, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, uh, you could ask the question from an alien viewpoint, is there any intelligent life on Earth? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, boy. All right. Well, this is the holiday special, and uh, you and I could talk for a long time, and I was thinking about this someday. Uh, someday a guy just uh, skew the listener questions and just talk to you for the whole period. But this is the holiday special. We want to give back. Okay. We want people to join in answer. on the fun, as the tradition is. So we're going to dive right in so we can use as much time as possible on all this. Okay. Um, uh, as I said, we had 19. We'll make it a, a square solid 20 
because I, I used an example question for people, and it'll probably haunt me to my to my last day if I don't actually ask it. I always wonder okay. why I didn't. So here, here we'll go. Uh, dear Stanton, this is the as I said the uh, the template for everyone. Have you ever considered the possibility that there's a connection between UFOs and other paranormal phenomena like Bigfoot or ghosts? Happy holidays, a BOA audio listener. Well, yeah, I have uh, persistently said that it would uh, astonish me if an advanced civilization wasn't much more involved in the paranormal than we are. And the input I get is that almost all the conversations take place telepathically. I would expect them to know, I mean, how to move through walls is pretty neat, uh, you know, without breaking the glass, so to speak. Uh, I would expect them to know about reincarnation and... uh a lot of this so-called paranormal, we call it paranormal because we don't know what to do about it and because we're biased against looking at it. Uh, there's a chapter in Science Was Wrong about uh, experiments and telepathy and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Kathy Martin found, she did that chapter, and she found that uh, there's loads of good published experiments in respectable scientific journals, but the scientific community doesn't want to deal with them. They'll keep saying, as they do with UFOs, nothing to it, folks, nothing here, go away, don't bother us. Yeah. So I am convinced, indeed, as a matter of fact, an old colleague of mine wrote a book about uh, Bigfoot and UFOs. Stan Gordon? or No, well before that. When okay. I was living in California, which means it was more than 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if... Uh, there was a connection uh, that uh, maybe they dumped some guys off here to give them a hand with the heavy lifting or, uh, you know, I, I've given a lot of reasons where aliens might come here. One of them is this is a penal colony. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here, uh, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. But another one might be that they were checking out various and sundry things, and this was a convenient place to do it because it, obviously there was no this sophisticated life here a right, long time right. ago. And so, uh, you know, I, I think there are Bigfoot, and you've talked to Stan Gordon, you know that he thinks there are, and he's got a lot of evidence. The, the kicker is there's so few people who want to look at the evidence the, of the debunkers. Don't bother me with the facts, my mind's made up, is the, <laughs> the, the calling card for these guys. So, yeah, I think there is a connection uh, and paranormal doesn't do enough service to the fact that there's a lot of stuff that, when investigated, turns out to be true. I, I just read a book, uh, Psychic Intuition, and uh, by a woman who's a lawyer, mind you, but it turns out to have worked with police and stuff, you know, yeah. to find people. And uh, uh, she's got some very good things to say, uh, indicating that there's a lot going on that we don't fully understand of communication with the the brain and the body and what's hmm. going on out there and all that stuff. It's fascinating. So, yeah, I'm a physicist, but not everything sits still for you to measure it. I think that's one of the problems, incidentally. The, uh, the SETI guys are only accustomed to dealing with things that, that, that nobody can control. You know, planets, uh, stars, uh, clouds, yeah. whatever. But if it involves thinking beings, uh-oh, that's not their bag. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You're right, absolutely. Okay, well, well let's dive into okay. the questions now. we got a lot. So we begin with Hillbilly. Some of these, these come from various outlets, Facebook, uh, forums, all that good stuff. So some of the names may be a bit silly. Uh, Hillbilly asks, well, he begins with season's greetings and hello to Stanton. 
Given the ET's apparent ability to manipulate gravity, do you think that they also can manipulate time or dimensions that we mere humans haven't stumbled upon or been told to by the powers that be? And he wishes us both uh, well this holiday season. Well, I'm not sure they manipulate gravity, as a matter of fact, but hmm. uh, I think they know a lot that we don't know, you know, which is to be expected. My mantra is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in yes. an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past, uh, and a laser isn't just a better light bulb, entirely different physics. So you can levitate magneto-aerodynamically, too, you know. Are you really uh, negating gravity? No. I mean, a rocket pushes you up, gravity pulls you down. It's not an anti-gravity machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you you see what I'm saying? This, yeah, absolutely. This is how you look at things. Mm. And so, uh, and, uh, oh, I started to say about what people don't seem to understand, especially the debunkers, is that uh, every advanced civilization... Everywhere will know that most of the energy in the universe is produced by nuclear fusion. All the stars and all the galaxies, nuclear fusion. And we didn't even hear about nuclear fusion, didn't think about it until 1938. And our first fusion device, if you will, was 1952 with Mike, the first H-bomb. It only produced the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. 10 million! <laughs> and the big bomb in the war was uh, 10 tons of TNT equivalent, a blockbuster. Wow. So when I'm, I worked on a study of nuclear fusion back in the early 60s. There have been a number of them. If you use the right stuff in the right way, you can kick particles out the back end of a rocket having 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. Hmm. 10 million. Now, it's not going to be cheap. I'm not saying you can go down to the, your favorite Lockheed store and buy one. Apollo wasn't cheap. Uh, developing nuclear weapons was very expensive for the time. And, you know, people don't realize that we built a gaseous diffusion plant during World War II in Tennessee to separate uranium isotopes uh, because you need a lot of U-235. And it was a mile long. It was built in secret. Yeah. It used 5% of the electrical power being produced in the United States in secret. Was it cheap? Heck no. <laughs> but we decided to do it. I mean, the stealth aircraft, $10 billion. So, you know, I suppose the problem is the academics are used to programs that involve, you know, six professors and 20 grad students. Right, right, right. Yeah, when I worked on nuclear airplanes in 1958, we spent $100 million that year. That wasn't. Uh, that was a lot of money in 1958, $100 million. Employed 3,500 people for uh, 1,100 of them were engineers and scientists. So the, the thing that stands in the way of people thinking about going to the stars is that you could do it easily. Nobody says it's going to be easy. Yeah. Look, the Navy went from building nuclear submarines to go around the world without coming to the surface. They've got uh, aircraft carriers out there that can operate for 18 years without refueling. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. But it's been done. Like I say, it wasn't cheap. Once you know how to do it, it gets easier the next time around. Exactly. And you presume the aliens don't have all these budget issues that we do, so. Well, yeah. I mean, the first <laughs> one's expensive, but that could have been a million years ago. Exactly, exactly. Okay, we'll move on to the next one here. Marcus from Somerset, Mass. asks... Uh, 
for your opinion on the future of space tourism and suborbital flights such as Virgin Galactic Spaceship One. Would you ever consider taking the trip yourself and do you think it might eventually force open the door that Disclosure hides behind? I don't think it'll force open the door that Disclosure hides behind. On the other hand, I, I think it's the best thing that could have happened for private industry to get into the space business. I mean, if we were only using government-sponsored computers, there'd be four different companies, and they'd all be the product would be ten thousand times slower than what we got. Uh, the big thing about capitalism is the right to fail. A lot of guys lost their shirt, but some few guys got involved and made a mint. Mm. It takes a lot of effort, and uh, I. I I think that man in space privately done is, is the way to go. Because should I say that I don't trust government to do things right very often or to have much vision? <laughs> uh, Steve Jobs was, didn't work for the government, did he? No. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. Uh, would you take the trip yourself? You, you, do you have a couple hundred well, grand lying around? Uh, no, I don't, and I'm going to be 80 next year, and so probably any doctor would say, what are you, crazy? Now, I, <laughs> yeah. I realize Senator Glenn was, I guess, I don't know how old he was. He was old when he did it, but he was trained as an astronaut and all the rest of that. And hmm. So, uh, you know, if I had an opportunity uh, 10 years ago, I certainly would have, if I could have, uh, and I'd have to think about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm 35. I don't know if they'd let me go on it, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Sagacious wants to know what you, uh, if you think crop circles represent a genuine extraterrestrial phenomenon, or do you think they're all man-made? I, I mean, that's in my gray basket. Certainly some have been man-made. That doesn't mean all have been man-made. Certainly some are very exotic, that is, complex and, and so forth. So I don't know what's going on. It may be that there's an annual competition. Who can make the the uh, fanciest crop circle on Earth uh, in uh, two hours or less? You know, like an art fair. Yeah, I, I just don't know what to make of crop circles. And so, since I'm not an expert, I'm not going to express an opinion. I think maybe some are of extraterrestrial origin. Whether anybody can interpret them, you know, read the message. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, one to believe says it's often theorized that the nuclear blasts at the end of World War II attracted alien beings toward Earth. Now, as it takes at least four light years for light to reach our near nearest stellar neighbors, and the Roswell crash happened just a couple of years after the end of World War II, the mathematics doesn't add up. Uh, well, why should it? Wait a minute. Yeah. Let, let me stop him right there. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the first place, uh, nobody says that there aren't bases in the vicinity and that every library in the neighborhood has, hasn't listed Earth as a place that's going to be developing. We've got to keep our eye on these idiots. Uh, that's the first thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think they check us out. There were sightings before World War II, before Roswell. But remember, let's not assume everybody has to come from home base, uh, there, there, there's plenty of exploration done. Uh, well, I, I once did 25 lectures in 35 days in 15 states. I left home, I went from A to B to C to D, etc., and finally got home when I was finished with the lectures. I didn't go out and back, out and back, and out and back. So, yeah, I, I think we're on some, we were on somebody's list. World War II, uh, well, 
you know, our, our first discovery of x-rays, you know, like the beginning of the 20th century, uh, that's not very long ago. But the things that would attract them is a, it's a whole bunch of things. World War II started, of course, in the late 30s, and there were airplanes going back and forth. There were three things that at the end of the war would have told any uh, guy in the neighborhood, uh-oh, these idiots are going to be bothering us very soon. Soon meaning less than 100 years. Right. Uh, and the reason, the three reasons are pretty obvious. One is nuclear weapons, which leave their signature in the atmosphere, among other places. Uh, the second was powerful radar, which uh, is the beginning of the electronics age. And the third is the use of powerful rockets. They weren't being used to uh, send mail from uh, Germany to England. They were being used to kill. And you put those all together at the end of World War II, and you say, uh, soon these guys will be bothering us. You know, in 1947, there was only one place on the planet where you could study all three of those technologies. Southeastern New Mexico. That's where the first A-bomb was tested, White Sands. That's where we were firing to capture German rockets. That's where we had our best radar because, uh, believe it or not, some of the rockets went south instead of north, and the Mexicans <laughs> weren't very happy about that, so we needed the radar to know what the heck is going on. Yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, and so, uh, and also, you know, uh, like I say, I, I, I think that there's loads of civilizations out there all over the place and uh, I got a kick out of Jill Tarter saying uh, a couple of years ago that uh, there might be somebody as close as a thousand light years, and when we make contact, they'll help us solve our problems. I mean, that's the longest uh, question and answer period I've ever seen. Hi out there, can you help us? <laughs> uh, you know, the message takes a thousand years to get out and a thousand years to get back. Oh, yeah, what can we do for you? I mean, we, there are over a thousand stars within... 50 light years of here. Mm -hmm. And many of them have neighbors a lot closer than we do, which would lead to interstellar commerce, presumably. For example, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli, my favorite two stars from the Hill case. Yeah. They're only 39 light years away, but more importantly, from each other. They're only an eighth of a light year apart. They're next door to each other. Uh, and they're a billion years older than the sun. So you expect they figured out, and they'd have much greater incentive, since you can see the uh, planets around the other star. You can see the other star all day long, which is kind of neat. They'd have far more incentive for interstellar travel. We're out in the boondocks. You exactly. know, they're 30 times closer to each other than we are to the next star over. So wow. uh, to think that ain't nobody around uh, is silly as far as I'm concerned. And remember that the SETI people never consider colonization and migration, and yet uh, my grandparents were born <laughs> yeah. on another continent, you know. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, so you know what I'm saying. Exactly. All right. Uh, Randy wants to know, I get the feeling he uh, hasn't listened to many of the previous uh, holiday specials, but he wants to know who inspired you to devote your life to this quest and why. I think that, that whole story is almost apocryphal now. Uh, you you had the, you ordered some well, books and let me see if I can <laughs> you're, yeah. it was a two it was a, you were ordering some books, if you got a third one, uh, there was a discount of some kind and you noticed the UFO book, you bought it, uh, you were intrigued by it and uh, were surprised that no one else was giving it a fair chance. 
essentially, right? Well, there's a little more to it than yeah, that. Yeah, yes, I, I, so. I, I got a book because it was marked down, because I'm a cheapskate, uh, from two ninety five to a dollar. Edward Ruppelt's book, The Report on UFOs. Uh, and I read it, and it was interesting. Uh, the Air Force was a co-sponsor of our program. I was working on nuclear airplanes, so I respected the Air Force. And uh, I shared it with a neighbor. Charlie was 10 years older than I was and an engineer, and he was more impressed than I was, and that impressed me. Uh, and then we both moved away. When I first saw him 10 years later, he said, we knew you, and you didn't believe in flying. So he had come to my lecture. <laughs> <laughs> but... I read a whole bunch more books. Uh, my first radio program was uh, almost accidental. Uh, I got a call at 6.30 to do a talk show in Pittsburgh at 7 o'clock because somebody had canceled. Uh, and I live not far from the state. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is, like I said, it's all apocryphal by now. I, I, I know well, all these the, stories. The kicker amazing. here, though, yeah. is I did that show. Somebody at work heard me and had me speak to their book review club. And I did a whole bunch more shows. And there was a very good response from my professional colleagues. I'm still working in the industry. And I thought I had obtained the best possible job when I got laid off at Westinghouse on the nuclear rocket program. I mean, the rocket was a success, and the program died, you know. Uh, I'm driving across the country uh, looking forward to my job would be to try to figure out how flying saucers worked for McDonnell Douglas Astronautics in California. Halfway across the country, the program that was putting out the dough the manned orbiting laboratory program uh, here on the radio had canceled. <laughs> so I go in, I report in, you know, we just laid off 5,000 people, she says. And I said, yeah, I know. Well, they kept me on for three months, and I got another short-term job, and I decided, hey, I got a family to support. I got people to take care of. Uh, I'd already given lots of lectures. I got busy trying to get lectures, get on the morning early because it's cheap, between 6 and 8 in the morning from California, you know, back east, that's... Uh, nine on mm -hmm. and I've been at it ever since but it wasn't a conscious decision oh, I don't want to work in industry anymore there weren't any jobs for me and I right. had responsibility exactly let me ask so you I can't oh, recommend anybody else take the same path <laughs> <laughs> exactly I've, I've, I've often uh, encouraged folks to uh, if all else learn a trade before you be, become a full time UFO researcher the little piggyback question here that crossed my mind as you were uh, recounting all that was this friend of yours said he knew you before you believed in UFOs. I, I yeah, guess when, you must when he was my life. neighbor. Yeah, yeah he was my neighbor that when I before I read my first book. That's what I mean. I just I guess the question is, hey, hey, the the phenomenon never crossed your mind uh, until you till all that happened. You never had an interest sort of as a kid, or well, I'll or, tell or, you, or I, you already just I, missed it kind of, or what? I read a lot of science fiction when I was so between ten and twelve. I had a friend whose brother had a basement of the old pulp magazines. <laughs> so I read a lot of that. I used to take home uh, three or four at a time. Uh, good guy. And uh, and then I got into more interesting things, uh, more into science and working hard and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I, I didn't have an opinion about flying saucers because I didn't read anything about them. I didn't know anything about them yeah. at that point. And uh, uh, so... Right. When I got that first book, I I didn't believe in flying saucers. It was interesting. I mean, look, one of the, my concerns was if these things were real and they use nuclear energy, that would help our program. Yeah, exactly. You were just looking. Yeah, exactly. You were looking at through the lens of the nuclear physicist. Yeah, working on an exciting program, and you know, I was stupid enough to believe. My my dad worked for the same company for thirty seven years. 
it was a big that was standard back east, uh, you know, depression and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Uh, so I thought when I started with GE, I figured out I could retire when I was fifty six. I think it was because I was young, and uh, there were different divisions, uh, several different nuclear divisions. So I'd, I'd always work for GE. And three years later, I left voluntarily. <laughs> and I told the people I didn't think there would be a General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department in in a year or two. And 16 months later, it was canceled. I saw the handwriting on the wall. It was quite a break, in other words, from the way I thought life would go growing up in Linden, New Jersey. <laughs> Nancy from Iowa wants to know if you could only recommend one book to a diehard UFO skeptic, what would it be? And she wishes you a happy holiday. Well, thanks for the holiday. Uh, you know, I, I practically never try to deal with dyed-in-the-wool skeptics because their basic rule is don't bother me with the facts my mind's made up. I mean, yeah, so far we've learned already that you've given <laughs> books to these diehard skeptics. So, Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, what I, the people I'm trying to reach are the healthy agnostics. The people who say, well, I don't know, uh, tell me why you think they're real. Hmm. And that's a fair question, you see. Right. You know, I, they have no reason to believe in flying saucers because they haven't studied the evidence. So, okay. Uh, and that's where my book, Flying Saucers and Science, comes in the picture because I give the major sources of data. I give examples of the cosmic Watergate, if you will. I deal with the you can get here from there. Uh, questions. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, I've tried to raise all the questions that a healthy agnostic would raise. And I, of course, I expect people to be curious, let's say, and, and not ready to believe on the spot. Look, I've given over 700 lectures. I've had 11 hecklers. Two of them were drunk. I'm told you'll get more than that if you talk about sports, religion, or politics. You know, I don't talk about those things. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say it for you since, uh, f for Nancy too. The book is Flying Saucers and Science. Give that to the diehard skeptic. I think that's the, you know, that's, that's, that's the one. Steve wants to know if you ever get over to Nova Scotia. He's not far from Halifax. I would hate to hear that he missed uh, a visit from you to the area and he wants to know what you think, uh, some of the more compelling Canadian cases are besides Shag Harbor. Well, uh, I live, uh, 300 miles from Halifax, maybe, and I have a daughter who lives in Nova Scotia, so I do get down there from time to time. I've spoken down there uh, at Shag Harbor, as a matter of fact, and at a couple of universities, uh, Mount St. Vincent. Uh, nothing coming up immediately. Um, uh, you know, I'm in Fredericton. People get to me on my website, uh, com. For the non-Canadians out there, Fredericton's the capital of New Brunswick, and Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia. Halifax, Dartmouth, I should say, I guess. And, uh, yeah, there's, uh, the Shag Harbor case is a good case, and I've spoken at that conference several times. And, uh, you know, uh, everywhere there are good cases and interested people. Keep your eye on the newspapers. Look at my website. It lists where I'm going to be speaking, usually. Yeah. Any other signature case beyond Shag Harbor in Canada? It's hard. I can't think of too many well, other ones. Well, yeah, the um, Michelik, um, great case uh, in the Manitoba, Ontario area, where a guy was out prospecting, and there, there's a saucer sitting on the ground. It goes over to it, his shirt, he gets burns on his chest, hears strange voices inside, actually wound up at the Mayo Clinic 
getting checked on stuff, and the RCMP did an investigation. And uh, Chris Ratkowski, who collects Canadian cases uh, every year out at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, uh, has written about uh, the Michelak case. Okay. Uh, very good case. Oh, another one I like is the one uh, where the uh, there were 32 witnesses up in the uh, Yukon uh, to a huge monster, and they all drive along the highway. Happen to have been out there afterward, and they were in groups of two and three, as you might expect. This is out in the boondocks now. There was only one place people would stop for gas, for food, whatever. And so how, that's how Martin Jasek, a civil engineer, was able to collect a lot of cases from people who stopped in there. 32 witnesses he had. He did a uh, triangulation, was able to show that the object was between six-tenths and 1.2 miles long. Oh, wow. That's a big old... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, I've spent time with him. I've been at the location... And he did a really fine job, and people are trying to pass it off. Oh, it was a reentry of something. Oh, come on, it doesn't fit the data. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, when you say that the front was over the mountain and the bottom was over the lake, and then when you do a number of these things, uh, you can come up with numbers. And he did, and he's written a report. So Martin Jacek, J-A-C-E-K, you probably find him on the Internet. There you go. Google it, folks. Marco, it's a little long, but I'll read it because I feel like he uh, has something to say. He lives near the site of the famous Portage County UFO, uh, Ohio UFO chase in 1966 and the 1994 Trumbull County case. He recently found Dale Spar's original audio interview immediately following the incident and heard about the Portage County case many years ago from a local police chief that listened to it over the police radio while on duty that night in neighboring Summit County. He found out more details in uh, Hynek's UFO experience, and he puts over the late Kenny Young, who did a great job bringing the Trumbull County case to light. And he's yeah. wondering if you were aware of any new information on these cases. Not new information. I was in Pittsburgh when the Dale Spar case happened, and uh, the guy, Bill, can't think of his name, the, the head of our little UFO Research Institute, uh, heard uh, Quentin Ellett trying to tell these guys that he was the Air Force Project Blue Book representative really say stupid things to these two cops trying to convince them it was something conventional. And uh, he came across, like I say, sounding stupid. Uh, Here are two cops going along, uh, nothing to gain by telling lies, and they see something, and others who listen to the conversation see something. It was a darn good, solid case, and Bill Weitzel was his name out of Pittsburgh. And uh, he wrote that up, they talked to the people, other people have. Uh, I don't know a lot about Trumbull. I just remember hearing in that Kenny Young did a great job. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are plenty of good cases out there. And the, the document I offer to many people who say, well, there aren't any good cases. I say, look at Jim McDonald's congressional hearings testimony. Uh, believe it or not, there were hearings in Congress on July 29th, 1968. My birthday, that's why I remember the date. And uh, six scientists testified in person, six more of us in writing only. I was the only one without a Ph.D. (laughs) I think I'm the only one who's still alive, too, because I was the youngest. (laughs) Uh, And Jim McDonald's paper, which is listed on my website, gives 41 excellent cases. Jim talked to over 500 witnesses. 41 of his best cases are in his congressional testimony. 
it's amazing how that is never referenced by the noisy negative. <laughs> yeah. And incidentally, three of the twelve were astronomers, and and then we have uh, the great English astronomer Royal uh, Lord Rees say that only kooks see UFOs. Yeah, this is the guy who's worried about the robot apocalypse too, right? <laughs> Um, I remember we discussed him in previous years, yeah. Uh, all right, next, uh, this guy doesn't use a name. He just says Tim Benall's biggest fan, which I appreciate, I guess. Uh, he wants to know if you've investigated the German UFO crash alleged by Deke Richards, and if so, what are your views? No. When was that? I have no idea. This is, <laughs> this is completely, Richards. yeah, no. D-E-E-K, uh, Richards, and he alleges that there was a German UFO crash. Yeah, this is, you know, like I said, uh, with the listener questions, I like them because this would never cross my desk. Apparently it hasn't crossed yours yet either, but uh, I never no, think so. No, I would say there are more crashes than Roswell. Absolutely. Uh, I like the Aztec case. Uh, one of the books listed on my website is the Aztec incident. But, okay. He, well, uh, he, he, he has did a, a good job. Yeah. <laughs> he has a follow-up quickly. Uh, we'll throw that one in since we didn't really get anything on the Deke one. Uh, he wants to know if you visited James Gilliland's ranch to view the UFOs that regularly fly around Mount Adams. No, I've heard about it, and I almost got there one time, but I still haven't made it. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I've only lectured in 18 countries and 50 states and 10 provinces, so I'm busy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Konomi. Uh, he has uh, something to say here. He thinks you're a relentlessly honest and invigorating presence, which is a nice... Ooh. Yeah, I know. I was impressed by that. As a scientist and a researcher, you have thought about extraterrestrial reality and disclosure for most of your adult life. Most ordinary people don't think very much about it all, outside of a few movies and a smaller group of eyewitnesses. If the ETH was proven by scientists at some point, even by finding the astronomical evidence, uh, Dyson spheres, etc., what kind of impact... Do you think it would have on our society today? Not the random fears played up by the condom report, et cetera. You know, how would you think it would impact all the various uh, things? Well, I think uh, that's why I say we shouldn't just make everything, uh, you know, open all the gates and let all the data fall out. Uh, I, I think you need to do it with preparation for the major impact it would have on our planet. There, there are several problems. What impact will it have on religion, for example? Uh, who speaks for the planet? Who's going to sell anybody out there the goodies from here? Uh, you say, well, we'll take a vote. Well, Chinese got 1.3 billion and we got 300 million people. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're not giving one vote one person at all. I, I think any announcement has to be accompanied by a statement that there will be international conferences looking at the various aspects of that. That is the religious aspect, the political aspect, the military aspect. One major concern, of course, is how do we go from a society that will spend a trillion dollars this year on things military? I mean, thousands of kids die needlessly every single day, but we're still spending a trillion dollars every year on things military. How do we go from a society like that to one that is capable of selecting somebody to speak for them to deal with aliens. In other words, we're a primitive society. Our major activity is tribal warfare. And some people, after all, have a lot to lose if we start thinking of ourselves as earthlings. Hmm. I mean, like it or not, if an announcement is made, we are all earthlings. You know? Exactly. It changes everything. And the trouble is everybody in power wants to stay in power, and I know of no government that wants its citizens to owe their allegiance to the planet instead of that individual government. Nationalism is the only game in town. 
So I think it's going to take a while, a crazy analogy maybe, but desegregation in the South of schools went much better when they did it one year at a time. You know, this year it'll be kindergarten, next year it'll be kindergarten, and mm-hmm. first grade next yeah. year, et cetera. You get people a, a time to get used to things. Staggered. Yeah, and also it has to do with what will the leadership say. If you say our people would never put up with segregation, then you will get riots, then you will get nastiness. If you say we have law-abiding people, the mayor says, and whether they like it or not, I think they'll go along with this because it's a decent thing to do, then you have much more peace. Uh, So a lot has to do with, okay, how is the information presented on disclosure? And are we willing to recognize that this is a whole new ballgame for the planet, not just for any one country? And we have troubles on this planet working with each other, don't we? Yeah. yeah. seems to me we do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Ophabtas wants to know if there was a space agency somewhere with a huge budget that would have to choose to use that budget to either A, put people on Mars in the near future, or B, develop more sophisticated probes, satellites, telescopes that would go much further and gather information from areas of space relatively unknown to us. Those are the two options. Uh, If you're in charge, which option are you choosing and why? Uh, Half and half. Uh, (laughs) I would try to say, how can we work with our neighbors in space who know a great deal more than we do to see how we can join the Galactic Federation or at least the preschool for it? Uh, in other words, the notion that uh, we're going to be the ones who find out everything is crazy. Uh, they already know. I, in other words, I consider us immersed in a sea of other civilizations mm. uh, who know a great deal of history. And again, I have to reiterate, we've only had a flight, let's say, for a hundred and what, a hundred and ten years. Hundred and ten years. The planet's four billion years old. We are not very advanced. (laughs) Mm. Uh, Nuclear fusion, 1938. Uh, X-rays, what, 1890-something or other. So it sounds like you're you're saying use the the funds to, to, I guess... Open the door of the UFO thing, but but I yes. if, if this guy's this you know you're an, you're the head of NASA. What would you choose though to put people? You have no choice but to choose one or the other. Let's. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to go to Mars. Okay. And as a matter of fact, working in the space industry back in the sixties, uh, my colleagues and I all expected we'd have a colony on the moon by now, hmm. and yeah, we I would expect- have gone to Mars. I mean, a nuclear upper stage makes it a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. That's why we were building the thing. And it worked. And then they canceled the program. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would also choose that. I think uh, how much further out do we have to go? How much more information do we need about the places that are super far away? Let's let's refocus the energy towards uh, expanding out now from within. Yeah. Okay. Red Pill Junkie has a fascinating question. He says uh, he observes that in 2007 you, wrote, you co-wrote – with Kathleen Martin, the highly recommended book, Captured, which should be considered the definitive account of Betty and Barney Hill's abduction experience. Kathleen, of course, was Betty's niece, and from her, the reader can get acquainted with how the experience affected Betty's family. But through the book, the reader also learns that Barney had two sons from a previous marriage. 
Red Pill Junkie's question is, has any researcher ever tried to contact these two other men in order to learn their side of the story? Well, Kathy certainly did. Yeah, she was in touch with family. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, she was. And uh, I should add that I met uh, Barney before he died. Uh, pretty hard to do after he died, I hmm. realize that. But I mean... Uh, uh, I went to dinner with him and Betty in, in Pittsburgh again, and uh, in what late '68 and early '69 he died. I was very favorably impressed. I met Betty many times after that. Oh, I'm sure. Well, it sounds to me like then that they don't have anything really to say about the uh, the whole thing, because otherwise we would have heard about it by now. Uh, that's right. I've, I've met with uh, at least one of them. Uh, we had sessions in in uh, New Hampshire, or Lincoln, New Hampshire. There's a sign on the road up there put up by the state of New Hampshire hmm. announcing the Betty and Barney Hill abduction took place here. It, uh, Kathy had to write the text, and it took a year to get it approved. I know it was a it was a it was a challenge. You're putting me in a hell of a position here, but I I have no choice. You're not going to kill Santa Claus because he doesn't exist. <laughs> really, Brian? He doesn't exist. That's right. He's not real. Oh, interesting. Interesting theory, Brian. Um, who else isn't real? Hmm? You gonna tell me that Elmo isn't real? Huh? SpongeBob? Is he not real, Brian? Is, is, is SpongeBob not there at the bottom of the ocean giving Squidward the business? Hmm? And, and what about Curious George? Huh? Does he not really exist? Hmm? Is Curious George not really out there making little boats out of newspapers that he should be delivering? Huh? Educate yourself, you fool. It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! Hey, kids. I heard on the news that an airline pilot spotted Santa's sled on its way in from New York. Oh. <laughs> you serious, Clark? Thorny Bastard wants to know, uh, he, he, he observes also that, uh, well, he, he mentions that last year you touched on a number of trace evidence cases, but didn't get into much detail, and he wants to know if you can pick one or a few of the most compelling cases and tell us a little bit more about them. Well, you know, I, I often speak of Delphos, Kansas. Uh, Ronnie Johnson, age 16, I guess, was out finishing his chores for the evening, looks up, there's this damn saucer sitting a uh, foot or two off the ground, brilliantly lit. And he's gawking at it, and he can't move. He's just temporarily paralyzed. This thing takes off. He dashes into the house, tells his parents, and they laugh at him. And he just saw flying. So, well, you don't need to believe me. You go out and see it. They did. They go back to where he had been, and there's this ring of soil about 10 feet in outer diameter, about a little over a foot across, where the soil is all dried out. And there's a glow on the soil, and there's a glow at the bottom of a tree that's nearby and a board that's nearby. And they get kind of scared, and then his dad reaches down and touches the soil, and so does his mother, this glowing ring of soil. And she can't take pulses at the rest home where she works part-time for the next couple of weeks. Sort of a burn on her hand. Her, his father's hands were pretty... Uh, you know, a hard-working guy, calloused and all that sort of thing. Yeah. They call the sheriff. Sheriff comes out next day and uh, checks for radioactivity. That's what everybody worries about. Yeah. And there wasn't any. And there's an article in the paper, and 
Ted Phillips hears about that. He's in the neighboring state of Missouri. This is in Kansas. And so Ted uh, talks to the sheriff, goes out, meets the Johnsons, gets samples of the soil. Uh, he sends me some samples. Uh, and I had tests made. And I called around to find what's the place to, uh, best place to get uh, samples tested. This is over a period of time now. And because uh, the soil wouldn't grow anything. And I found the best testing lab in Southern California where I lived at the time. And so I had them analyze the soil from the ring and also from nearby soil. Yeah. Okay. Like a control. Yeah. And uh, the ring soil had much too high a level of soluble minerals, too salty to grow anything. And so I published an article in. Uh, Fate Magazine, I think it was, actually, yeah. <laughs> a very long time ago. And uh, But it, it was typical of a good case in the sense you got a, a family well-known in the community, uh, small towns in mid-America. It's not often you have liars, hoaxers, et cetera. They can get away with it without people knowing about that. Yeah, and a sophisticated operation to taint the dirt. Uh, yeah, and he didn't have anything that could dry out the soil 14 inches down, believe me. Right. <laughs> and so that case always impressed me. Other people have done analysis. They also conclude that it's anomalous. Uh, but Ted has loads of good cases. And I like that one simply because I got involved. I tried to find the best lab I could, talk to them in advance, got their views. I didn't put words in their mouths, published an article about it. And uh, uh, typical, Ted has collected 5,000 physical trace cases from 80 countries. And he's still working on it, a whole bunch of them at a place in Missouri. There were a lot of sightings in a short period of time. But he's collecting them from all over the world. And quite honestly, after you read your first 100 physical trace cases, it's dull. The same thing keeps happening all over the world. Yeah, it's like reading uh, Lights in the Sky reports. It's, you, it's yeah. It starts amazing, and, and then it becomes run-of-the-mill. Yeah, run-of-the-mill, and one-sixth of the cases involve reports of beings associated with the craft. So what are you supposed to say? All these people are liars. And nasty, <laughs> yeah. noisy negativists, they only tell the truth. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me just circle back here. I just want to mention this. Steve, who wrote in earlier asking about the uh, Canadian cases, he wanted me to thank you for all of your great research over the years. So uh, he asked me oh. to do that. So uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. And Thorny Bastard, who wrote just now, he uh, he says he's a listener from China. So we're getting a lot of uh, international and international uh, letters here this year. I've spoken in China, incidentally. I know. They're interested, too. <laughs> I know. They're doing some interesting stuff over there. Ted Torbich says, Mr. Friedman has worked on nuclear propulsion vehicles in the past. He wanted to know your thoughts on whether or not, at the time of that work, there were plans, there were plans to make the planes semi-autonomous and remove the pilot, thus making the shielding less of an issue. We weren't talking about doing that we had i worked on shielding and i made sure the shielding was uh, between the engines and the pilots and uh, you know a long airplane <laughs> uh not at that time now you know now we talk about drones and all that sort of thing and uh, 
the, the nuclear airplane would have had the major advantage of unlimited range, you know, like thousands of hours without refueling. Change the crews. <laughs> yeah. There were, there were, we were successfully operated jet engines on nuclear power. Uh, that, up in Idaho, incidentally, at the Idaho test station. Uh, there were kickers with, uh, where do you land such a thing? If you want to do maintenance or anything like that, because the reactor's pretty darn hot, radioactive. Yeah. So there are operational things. And you see, the Air Force, unlike the Navy, never really knew what they wanted to do with the nuclear airplane. They didn't have leadership. My, the guy I hold up as a leader, some people think he was a blankety blank, was Admiral <laughs> Hyman Rickover. And I know people who said they hated the guy's guts. But he got the job done, despite opposition from the battleship boys. He said, this is where we're going, guys. You don't want to go there? Get off the ship. Mm. And he was, uh, how shall I put this, motivated by getting the job done. Okay. He he was Jewish, and he couldn't join the country clubs, and he knew that he would only get so high in the Navy. He was an admiral, but not a top admiral. So his job was to get the job done, as simple as that. And like I say, I've talked to a lot of people who knew him uh, at one time or another. If you worked in the nuclear navy, you ran across him. And he provided leadership, which you don't appreciate until you don't have it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's, uh, that, that's a good observation. I never would have uh, thought of it that way. Uh, Ted also mentions here, uh, we'll, we'll sort of fill in a little bit here, uh, Ted all you you mentioned the drones. Ted mentions drones as well. He he wants yeah. to know your thoughts uh, on the possibility, I guess you could say, of a nuclear powered drone, which would uh, essentially, you know, could stay in the air almost for a considerable amount of time if if, if yeah. uh, what we've learned so far holds up. And he wants to know, in general, also beyond that, uh, just your position on drones in general, because this is quite the uh, development for the you know for the aeronautical well, community. You know, I, I worry about drones because of the political things. Uh, you know, should we be running around the world killing who we want to kill with a drone? I, I, that rubs me the wrong way. Uh, on the other hand, there are certain advantages to drones. I mean, uh, isn't uh, Amazon going to deliver books that way? <laughs> I just saw an article about I that. saw that. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, it, nuclear power could do a job on drones. Uh and, you know, people don't realize that the Russians uh, launched uh, 33, I think it was, satellites with uh, active nuclear reactors on board to provide the electricity. And uh, one came down up in Great Slave Lake in Canada, and there was all this fuss about, oh, my God, the caribou are going to get radioactive. <laughs> Nobody mentioned that what was important was the United States had only launched one successful nuclear reactor in space and having a reactor instead of a solar power plant uh, for example uh, gives you far more electricity for use in sideband radar in uh, laser weapons and ion beam weapons all this sort of stuff it meant the Russians were way ahead of us none of the press coverage none mentioned that that's what was significant here not the radiation levels out in the middle of nowhere yeah, uh, kind of crazy. I mean, but it illustrates something of significance. We actually, the United States actually wound up buying one of the Russian reactors and testing it at, uh, in Albuquerque. Oh, wow. <laughs> How times have changed, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, drones. Interesting uh, 
interesting development. I presume kind of just just, just to sort of uh, fill in a little bit of a blank here on the question that he asked it. it, it I, I take it then that they didn't really consider the idea, because what he's suggesting is a drone, essentially, semi-autonomous uh, nuclear nuclear. I presume the idea sort of like just never crossed you guys' mind back then that the uh, that that would even be a possibility. I I would say we were worried much more about the operational difficulties, and you know there were people who were opposed to the manned space program. Do it all automatically. Hmm. We've been very glad that we had men up there to make decisions to do things in a technology that isn't well advanced. You know what I mean? You need yeah. somebody to be able to think his way through things. Look at Apollo 13, for example. And uh, So drones were a possibility, but we were still building airplanes with wings. Yeah. And uh, so I think the first part was to make a successful uh, engine combination that would work. Uh, people don't realize, incidentally, that uh, airplanes weigh a lot less than submarines. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe well, you know, nuclear submarines, yeah, routine. Yeah. 1956 uh, with the Nautilus, but uh, it's a lot harder to get the weight down for an airplane. Mm. Uh, and also it takes a, more, a higher power level. We were talking, just to give you rough numbers, uh, two or 300 megawatts for the operating power of the reactor on a nuclear airplane. Oh, wow. And the submarines are running 50 or 60. So that gives you some idea, and the submarines weighed a heck of a lot more. Yeah. So. Okay. Mike P. of Jacksonville, Florida, asks, do you believe there is an underground government science program, and have they conquered anti-gravity propulsion? We've kind of talked about this a little bit, but. Yeah. Uh, I have no reason to believe that. There is plenty of classified work going on. Uh, just about a month ago, it was announced that the black, uh, quietly, that the black budget for the year would be about $50 billion. Jeez. That, that's a lot of underground money, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it had gone up 3% from the previous year. So there are people who still think governments can't keep secrets, which is utterly ridiculous. Of course they can. And I am not for releasing all the classified data we have on flying saucers. Because there's a national security aspect. If we've learned something from wreckage and whatever, why should we hand it to our enemies? Exactly. I mean, I haven't heard any plans that the Russians and the Chinese and the Americans get together and say, okay, we're all going to put it all out on the table and see what we can do together as earthlings. Huh. You, you see that happening this next year? No, I don't no. Know. I think what you're asking for really is just uh, just, just for whoever – has the real information on all this to sort of start even in the playing field with the general public so we can all be on the same page. Yeah, there's a difference between saying, yes, we're being visited, and here are our plans, uh, here are the reasons we kept it secret, here are our plans for release of and having discussions with other governments because we know that now with Kepler and all the rest that there are loads of civilizations out there, and we can't just do what we please down here. Exactly. Bob T. asks, why would humans 50,000 years from the future travel back in time to gather DNA from 1981 as reported by Linda Moulton Howe in the Rendlesham case? I feel like this is more of a question for Linda Moulton Howe than you. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but let, let's, let's couch it. Let's, let, let's, uh, let's rephrase it, I guess, and just ask you, A, Rendlesham, B, the possibility of time travelers being a part of the whole uh, milieu of UFO well, stuff. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big fan of time travel. I think theoretical physicists like to play with the equations. 
I think Rendlesham actually happened. I see no reason to link that with time travel or DNA gathering from the future or anything like that. Mm. I mean, science fiction writers got loads of good ideas uh, for plots. That doesn't mean it's reality. So I think Rendlesham happened. I've talked to Colonel Halt and a number of the other people involved. We did a television show, as a matter of fact, in uh, England. And uh, I, I see no reason to say time travel, although when you stop to think about it, if you go from New York City to the middle of New Guinea, in some ways that's time travel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at their technology versus yours. And, uh, yeah, that's different. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and to be fair to Bob, he he uh, part of the gist of his question too that I didn't get a chance to dig into was uh, he he takes issue I guess with with uh, people let's say uh, ascribing agendas and motives to the ETs that he thinks that they should be able to do easily like get DNA or manufacture gold or any of the other stuff that people think the ETs are here for. So well, well I, I think uh, I think there are probably some rules about non-interference. I don't doubt that there. Look, the Earth uh, is the densest planet in the solar system. I don't mean the people. I mean a cubic foot of Earth weighs a cube, more than a cubic foot of any other planet. That means more heavy metals, and gold is one of the heaviest metals. So Zachariah Sitchin may not have been too far off in that. Uh, and if there's, we know from our analysis of the stars that heavy metals are hard to find. So if this place has been off in the boondocks, nobody bothering too much, it's too far to go to dig up the goodies. Uh, although people will go a long way to dig up gold, as you may recall from a few gold rushes. Yeah. Had, you know. uh, but uh, I think that uh, they may very well have picked up gold in the past. You know, think about it. Gold ore is worth mining if there's a half ounce of gold per ton of ore. And I'm interested more in rhenium, osmium, than yeah. very heavy metals, which have special properties and are hard to find. So who knows? I mean, maybe the aliens came here to pick up all those diamonds that washed off the streams of Africa into the ocean. Hmm. Uh, we're We're not picking up nodules. The aliens may be. There's, what, well over a thousand... Unidentified submerged objects, USOs. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole book about them. Uh, and uh, so we don't know why other people are coming here, but certainly I think one major reason is to quarantine us. <laughs> well, if you were an alien, would you want us out there? I, I don't think so. I haven't had anybody say yes to that question. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a no. Um yeah, I think but part of the, part of his thing here too is that uh they can just make gold. Is his argument, I guess. But well, uh, I, I, mean, I don't know. I have trouble with the idea of just making gold. Right. Uh, I got out of the base atoms or something. I don't know. I, it's uh, yeah. it's a, a way out Big of my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> uh Vale wants to know what steps do you think new and future UFO researchers and investigators can take to help facilitate the scientific community's acceptance of ufology? as a valid and important area of research? Well, I think more scientists need to get it. There have been a dozen Ph.D. theses, at least, done about UFOs, uh, none sponsored by the nasty, noisy negativists or these city cultists or any of those people you understand. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, certainly there should be more effort to get funding 
so that guys can spend a lot of time. I've been lucky. You know, I funded my own research. Like Roswell, my phone bill was running pretty damn high after Roswell. Remember, I found out about Roswell. Uh, but I think uh, we need to get the press to do its job. We need a Woodward and Bernstein for the cosmic Watergate as there was for the political Watergate. Hmm. And I think we haven't been doing enough along those lines. And one of the problems is that the attitude of ridicule has kept most people from reporting their sightings. I find, I ask after my lectures, 10% of the people have seen some. 90% didn't report it. So we're losing an enormous amount of data. Also, I think we could make more of an effort to solicit reports from former military people, uh, you know, guaranteeing non-release of names and all the rest of that. I respect security, but as long as the government keeps saying there's nothing, to, no national security aspect about this subject, uh, they're lying through their teeth. And when you look at the, um, the Bolander memo, General Carol Bolander, the Air Force general, who was asked, what should we do about Project Blue Book in 1969? And uh, he hadn't had anything previously to do with it. He worked in the Lunar Excursion Module, a good engineer. And he wrote a memo in which he said reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with JNAP, Joint Army, Navy, Air Force Publication 146, or Air Force Manual 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. Two paragraphs later, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However... As previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures designed for that purpose. Now, you realize the Air Force has been saying, ain't nothing going on. We closed Blue Book. That was it, folks. That's it. So I know from my lecturing all over the place, people come up to me quietly and they got to tell somebody that there's a huge untapped source of information. And one direction we should be going, I think, is get our hands on that. And, you know, I, I had a case in California. I had a call on a Sunday, uh, Monday, on something that happened on Sunday, a bright light in the sky, right over Los Angeles. Should have been loads of people who saw it. Eh, oh, well, no big deal. Just a light in the sky. Next night, I got another call from somebody who obviously had been watching the same thing, but from a different direction. So I called the newspaper Got them to run a letter for me saying, I'm a nuclear physicist, I collect data and flying saucers, I've had some reports about something seen Sunday night at this time. I didn't give much in the way of details. I'd like to hear from any other witnesses. Witness names won't be used. Here's my phone number, here's my address, etc. I got 30 responses. And many of them with other people when they saw the same thing. Yeah. And fortunately, as proof of what kind of observers people are, Somebody had binoculars, was able to say that it was a plastic bag with a candle in it. And uh, I talked to the guy at the Wilshire Country Club, and I talked to the police, the uh, fire chief, and it came down there. And they weren't about to go public because they knew every kid in the neighborhood was going to try to do the same thing. <laughs> it was pretty darn dry out there. Yeah, know? yeah. I didn't think but that. the interesting thing was not one person expressed any craziness didn't see any beings, they didn't see it do crazy motions. As long as you stuck them with the observables, what direction were you looking, 
What angle above the ground were you looking? What time was it? How much did it move in a certain period of time? People are darn good observers. That's why we know what they saw was Venus, for example. Hmm. They didn't know it was Venus because they don't know anything about Venus, but they happened to be driving out in the morning, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and what's that bright light in the sky? And when you pin down the observation, what direction were you looking, what angle above the horizon, how big or bright was it compared to the nearby stars, the observables. People are darn good observers. That's why we can uh, explain most sightings. Hmm. You know, uh, Dr. Tyson, there's a YouTube piece that he's on, uh, and when he talks about eyewitness testimony and they see lights in the sky and they immediately think uh, it must be an alien spacecraft, and then he talked about eyewitness testimony as the lowest form of evidence. But it's the best form when you got nothing else. Ask any police group. Mm. Are people perfect observers? Of course not. Do they have to be? No. But you never have them describing a tiger attacking a zebra instead of a automobile crash, do you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You don't have any zebras out there, do you? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Um, just to just to throw my own two cents in there for for new and future UFO researchers and investigators uh, to help all this better public relations, and I think uh, you're a champion yes. of that. So I always give you tremendous credit for that. You uh, you, you helped advance this thing in the minds and eyes of Good. so many people. Mike is curious to know if you had any run-ins with MIB types over the course of your research, both in uniform or assorted <laughs> types you might have suspected of being out of uniform in the same or similar manner as the encounters described by Bruce Rocks on a previous episode of uh, BOA Audio. Well, I'll tell you, I had one incident that some people want to make into a Men in Black case. I was down with uh, Hayden Hughes at a conference in, uh, I don't know, Oklahoma or someplace like that, or Texas, Anyway, uh, it was three days or so, and I get a call. I gave a talk one night. I was going to be speaking again. I get a call at Hayden's place, and people wanted to take me out to lunch on Sunday. And I, the conference didn't start until well after that. So, sure, why not? Told them where I was. Up drives this black Cadillac. Out come three guys in black suits. We went out to a lovely lunch. <laughs> It turns out uh, they always wear black suits and they always okay. rent Cadillacs. But I casually mentioned this to somebody, and the next thing I know, there was an article in, like, the Inquirer or someplace, Friedman has men in black experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I've had somebody come up to me and ask me out to his home when I went, and uh, he had intelligence connections, and they were watching me, he said, but he... they. They were not unhappy with what I was doing, and so I've never had anybody threaten me. And I did get a call one time from a guy who said, uh, how come you're still alive, Stan? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were always saying the Air Force, uh, the cosmic water yeah, game, yeah. you're not telling the truth and stuff. I said, look, I must be doing what they want doing. If there's anybody vulnerable, I used to have a live answering service. Whenever I traveled, they know what hotel I was in, what room I was in, you know, so I could keep in touch. Right. And that drive between uh, Albuquerque and Roswell, boy, you want to take somebody out. <laughs> it would have been a great place to do it back then. Yeah, because there's nobody around. Uh, and so I've never had any feeling of fear or worry. Well, one time, I was giving a lecture. Somebody in the back row, pretty big hall, gets up and moves over to the wall. 
and starts moving forward. Oh, boy. And I'm lecturing, and I'm thinking, gee, I wonder if this dais up here will stop bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy thought. I mean, uh, who knows it, what's going it on? It crosses Why your mind, I'm that? sure, yeah. And he kept walking, and he sat in one of the first couple of rows, sat down, and nothing else happened. So I'll admit that for a few minutes, I was worried. There are crazy people in the world, and I didn't want one of them to be there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, wow. Um, and thinking about it in a way, if you apply the sort of uh – the, uh, let's say, textbook or less prosaic explanation to the whole men in black phenomenon, just say, you know, government uh, agents that are people working at the behest of the government to harass and annoy. You, you kind of had to deal with the worst men in black, uh, which is Phil Class, right? He, he kind of played you for your whole, I mean, like I said, if you go by the sort of the, the less prosaic explanation, that, that kind of applies. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, at least I'll give Phil credit for one thing. He paid me the $1,000. <laughs> he me, well, you know, he, he you've heard the story. One mm-hmm, of the MJ-12 yeah. documents, he says it was in uh, the large PICA type. Maybe I didn't notice it. It should have been a small elite type because he had nine documents from the National Security Council, all in elite type, and he would pay me $100 each for every genuine document meeting a whole bunch of criteria, uh, up to a maximum of 10 done in that same size and style type. Of course, he had never been, and I checked recently, never been to the Eisenhower Library. I've spent weeks out there. Anyway, I was going out there. I dug out 14 that met all his criteria, made copies, sent him copies and an invoice, and he paid me $1,000. He told everybody about challenging me and nobody about paying me, and there's no Friedman file at the class papers at the American Philosophical Society Library. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, Phil, uh, I don't know who he was working for, but... He certainly did a lot of damage. Uh, I don't know if anybody's looked at his at Heineck's uh, or his Phil's FBI file, hmm. and there are copies of some really nasty letters that he wrote to the FBI about J. Allen Heineck, uh, really putting him down, uh, in effect saying he's a kook, and how could you let him write an article in your magazine and so forth. The FBI took umbrage at Phil Class. They had wanted to prosecute him for a couple of cases where he had released classified data in Aviation Week and Space Technology, but they couldn't because they'd have to release the data. Yeah. But they did not think much of Mr. Class. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. And, you know, it's anybody can get it under – it's on the Internet, hmm. uh, Freedom of Information uh, request, Phil Class FBI file, and – he was nasty, and he tried to do a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. So, what can I say? As yeah, a real... Man in black? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly villainous, so I guess he would be a man in black. The final question here comes from Zero of Sinitum, and he asks, uh, what do you think of the current state of scientific education in the United States and the stereotype that he sees propagating now of science and engineering being something mostly done by foreigners or non-Americans? It's kind of, uh, you know, been downplayed in America. And uh, well, let me you, let me sort of like uh, just connect all this here so we can kind of wrap it up. For all the lip service, he says, paid to critical thinking skills and education today, it seems to him that academia is largely interested in creating drones that simply follow the static status quo, and he worries that you know that kind of thinking will result in less uh, unconventional thinking to look at the stuff that we've been talking about today. Well, here's somebody I agree with. I've been on 700 campuses. 
And uh, frankly, I think most colleges and universities, and this will sound terrible, but are operated for the benefit of the people who work there, not for the students who attend there. And we don't show up very well in these international competitions, starting at the basic levels, grade school through high school. I think we have done a lousy job of educating the world, our world, about science. And, you know, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze that and say why. Although I remember when I was teaching my son many, many years ago how to read second grade, the head of elementary education for the state of California said, all the evidence shows that children aren't ready for serious learning until they're eight years old. That's a crock of baloney, yeah. frankly. So uh, the methods of teaching reading were rotten. I, I did a lot of looking at this back then, and I was really upset. Uh, I mean, I was able to teach my son how to read, but uh, when he told me when he was in college years later, Dad, he said, you won't believe how many of the students can't read well. That's amazing. And that uh, was a signal, and I have found, uh, if you look at the awards stuff around You'll see an awful lot of foreign names hmm. in physics and, and so forth. This is not a racist remark. This is just saying they work hard, apparently. Hmm. And uh, I think uh, I listened to Amy Tan, the writer, who was doing an interview. She's done a number of books. And she mentioned that when she was young, being Chinese, uh, her mother insisted she get good grades, insisted she work hard and so forth, and there were a lot of kids who parents didn't insist on that at all. So I, I am very concerned about what you've said, uh, about what that person expressed, because I agree with them that we're in a crisis of not having our kids learn what they need to know. And I think all kids are eager to learn, but they don't want to stick out. You know, being a good student may be bad, bad news. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like, uh, that's tough. Yeah, you mentioned how we don't win any competitions on these uh, levels, but we're we're fantastic at college football. So uh, when the <laughs> football coaches get more than uh, get paid a lot more, yeah, <laughs> instructors do, then you worry, don't you? <laughs> exactly. Uh, that wraps up the listener questions. So we brought the plane in just about on time. Amazing stuff. Uh, thank you to all the folks who submitted questions. I do have here one more thing, if time permits, in my notes. I feel like it's important we mention this. You you lost a couple of titans from your from your research career this past year. Not only uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., but also Marjorie Fish. It's pretty stunning yes. uh, that both of those folks passed away this year. So I guess let's just talk a little bit about you know how they influenced your work because they influenced your work in a massive way. Uh, you know it, it, it bears well, it bears discussion. Yeah, Marjorie died in April, and she'd been suffering from Alzheimer's for about 10 years, unfortunately. But uh, I was asked by Cora Lorenzen of APRO if I could help Marjorie. This is back in the early 70s. Uh, she had visited Betty Hill and was building these three-dimensional models to try to evaluate the star map that was in the first book, The Interrupted Journey. There's more detail about this in uh, Captured. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, because I was traveling so much, I said sure, and so I went and visited Marjorie in Ohio. She was a school teacher, and I was with her uh, in Chicago. Alan Hynek wanted a presentation, so I happened my timing was right. I went over there when Marjorie was there to help her out. Uh, Dave Saunders was there too, incidentally, and then I was where she was at uh, 
at a MUFON conference in Ohio and helped explain her work. She was much better at talking to astronomers than she was the general people. Yeah. Mimi Hynek even thanked me for helping uh, make what she was trying to say a little clearer. Anyway, I found her one of the most uh, objective people I've ever known and helped get her a job at Oak Ridge National Laboratory where she worked for, geez, I don't know, more than 10 years. Oh, wow. As a technician. And so Marjorie was important. I published the first article about her work in Saga Magazine, everybody's favorite publication way back when. And I convinced Terry Dickinson, editor then of Astronomy Magazine, to do an article about her. And he talked to all kinds of people, and he did. And the article got more response than anything they'd ever published. And they put together this 32-page full-color booklet with all the letters from various people and stuff. Sold 10,000 copies immediately, which is unheard of. Then Carl Sagan's lawyers threatened to sue them because his name was on the front as one of the commenters. And... They made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I wound up with 18,000 copies in my garage. They're all gone long since. Oh, I was just going to ask. <laughs> no, uh, but so Marjorie was the epitome to me of a very bright gal. Yes, she belonged to Mensa, but objective, careful. She built more than 20 models, three-dimensional models of her local galactic neighborhood trying to see if there was a 3D pattern that matched the two-dimensional one that was in the book, The Interrupted Journey. Hmm. And I just read an article by a physicist saying she built a model. She built 27 of the darn things. Wow. And she was throwing out stars as the astronomers said, well, they wouldn't have planets around that kind of star and this kind of star. Most objective person you can imagine. So she was important to me, uh... And the other person was Jesse Marcel, Jr. Now, yeah, he died a few months ago. I met Jesse many years ago. He's an American patriot. Uh, I met his father, of course, who was the first one, well, second one, uh, who told me about Roswell. I was very impressed with Jesse Sr. I mean, let's face it, he was the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the entire world. You've got to have something on the ball to do that. That was the father. Yeah. Okay, Jesse Jr. was 11 years old at the time. He handled pieces of the wreckage. Uh, he went to college, was in, connected with the military for 40 years. He became a doctor, uh, otolaryngologist, uh, ear, nose, and throat mm-hmm. specialist. He was also a flight surgeon. He loved to fly. He flew helicopters. He was called back in, would you believe, to the military at age 68. Yeah, yeah, I remember hearing about that. To serve in, uh, I guess it was Afghanistan. He flew 225 combat hours, would you believe? At 68. Older than 68 at that time, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, I've been in his home. A great guy. We uh, see, saw each other in Roswell several times as well. Uh, had dinner with his family at various places. Uh, and I, a great respecter of this man who, incidentally, was flying behind enemy lines in Cambodia. You remember the place we weren't in in the Vietnam War? <laughs> yeah. The plane crashed. He came back out of that. And... You know, was very grateful uh, <laughs> for the gift of the rest of his life. Yeah, I'll say. And 
you know, he was not a braggart. He was not a noisy guy. He was a very bright guy. And you couldn't help but like him. And I never heard him expand. I mean, his book is on my website, incidentally, Braswell Legacy. How the event affected his father and his family and so forth. And so uh, I consider him a, a very special guy. Hey, can, can you imagine going into, I guess it was Iraq, not Afghanistan. Anyway, uh, 130 degree temperatures and you got to wear a flak jacket and a helmet and a sidearm all the time. Yeah, I couldn't do that now. And he was doing it over over the age of 68. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, so... Uh, uh, an American patriot, a hero, if you want to put it that way. I have the greatest respect for the man and uh, his family. Okay. And that's it. And that is it. So uh, what's coming up for you down the line here uh, in 2014? Uh, speaking engagements. Any? Uh, and obviously, I know you contribute a lot to various books, introductions, and stuff like that. Uh, any plans for another uh, another tome by you? Uh, I've thought about it. I haven't decided on anything yet. I've got some ideas, and we'll see. Okay. I am getting old, but I will be speaking in Texas. Uh, I believe it's on my website. In January, I'll be speaking in Boise, Idaho. George uh, Norrie and I will be doing a thing oh, nice. on the 22nd of March. I'll be speaking in Roswell at the annual event, the first week in July, annual festival. And this year, I'll be speaking this coming year at the MUFON conference uh, just outside Philadelphia uh, in July. Excellent. Uh, and my paper will be on the media and UFOs. Nice. Gives, gives me a chance to lambaste them. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I'm going to give you my annual, uh, my annual beg here. Please, the memoir. We, we need it. We've got to get the, uh, the Stan Friedman memoir. I, I, well, I, I thought that's you. one of the things that I'm thinking about. We'll see. Okay. All right. Now you know I'm obligated every year to ask, so I, I, I okay. desperately want this this <laughs> this book to be written. Um, and on that note, I, I we close the book on the ninth annual holiday special. I always get choked up here. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, already looking forward to next year, the tenth Me too. celebration. It's going to be really something big, I promise. Um, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. You have become a signature part of this program and a signature part of my, my, my whole career in this field. So thank you so much, sir. I hope you have a happy holidays and uh, just an awesome 2014. Thank you. That does it for the ninth annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Enormous thanks once again to Stanton Friedman for returning to the program and joining us on the holiday special. I cannot believe that it has been nine years running that we have featured Stan here on the holiday special. Be sure to check out Stan's website, www.stantonfriedman.com. Pretty simple, all one word, stantonfriedman.com. And do yourself a favor, if you haven't already, pick up the books by Stanton Friedman, Top Secret Magic, Crash at Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell Incident, Captured, Science Was Wrong, and the book that I personally give to many folks as a Christmas gift, and I cannot recommend it enough, Flying Saucers and Science. Love that book. 
please be sure to check them out. Moving right along now, normally this would be the time where we feature BOA audio listener feedback. I feel like I have that caveat at the beginning of all the listener feedback segments here at the end of these taped shows this season because we're coming at you in a very small window of time right now. We just rolled out the Mickey Moran Elvis Death Hoax episode a handful of days ago, and we're trying to get this episode out to you on the 22nd. Most likely you're going to be listening to this on the 23rd because it is going to be very late night when I wrap it all up. That said, this episode did kind of double as BOA Audio Listener Feedback in a way since we featured 19 BOA Audio Listeners and their questions. And I will cover one brief question here that was posted on my Facebook wall from Thomas, who says, After all these years of doing the show, don't you think it's time for a banal solo special? For the long-time listener, we know you are avoiding it. Ha-ha. Just a 30-minute show, no, not five minutes after a show, on where you are at with all this. Season 8, with the live shows and all, is turning into one of the very best seasons. Getting better year on year. Well done, my friend. Well, thank you for posting that, Thomas. I did respond to him on my Facebook wall, but I will cover it here. There's really no way I would ever do a solo 30-minute show. Trust me, folks, when I tape these outros, generally I'm a rambling moron as it is, and I have to tighten everything up so that the end segment of the program doesn't run so long in the first place. And if I just started talking and went for 30 minutes, I think it would be a nightmare. And I wouldn't want to waste a BOA audio episode on just me. As you probably know by now, 200-plus episodes, I'm of the opinion that this program really is a showcase for the guests. I'm just the facilitator, so I just don't see the point in doing that. But I do try to make appearances on various other podcasts. I'm always happy to appear as a guest on different shows and talk about where I am with all this. It's no secret my stance on all these various subjects. I just don't want to spend too much time talking at the end of the program because I don't think that's what folks want to hear. So there you go. I did actually cover one listener-submitted question here from uh, Thomas who posted it on Facebook. So it's not a total loss, BOA Audio listener feedback, at the end of the show. I feel terrible because we've gotten so many great emails from folks. We just haven't had the time to feature them here at the end of the program, but that will be one of my resolutions for 2014. That is to feature more listener feedback at the end of the program. Speaking of which, 2014, we've got an amazing array of guests in the pipeline. I sat down about two weeks ago and began fine-tuning the list of people I want to talk to in 2014. I've got about 15 people right now on this list. Tremendous names. Some folks you've heard of, some folks you haven't heard yet on the program. All of them are people that I very much want to talk to. I think we're going to keep going here with the mix of live and taped programs, but that said, we're likely going to be doing a little bit more taped shows in 2014. 
a big reason for that is simply that it is tremendously difficult to line folks up in November and December to tape interviews. The holiday season just crushes everybody's schedule, especially mine. So it is very hard for me to sit down and tape these interviews. So I'm hoping once 2014 begins that I can start scheduling folks and taping a bunch of interviews because, as I said, I really want to talk to all these various folks that are on this prospective guest list. I can't tell you too much more beyond that. I will preview next week's edition of the program in just a few moments. But I also wanted to say one more thing, and that is I felt kind of bad because of the bizarre water heater emergency meltdown that closed Ruck's giving, that I didn't get a chance really to wish everybody a very happy Thanksgiving. And I just want to take a moment and wish everybody out there listening right now, the hardcore BOA audio listeners especially. We know the casual listeners have already shut this off. They've moved on to God knows what, wrapping their Christmas presents. But the hardcore listeners are still listening right now. And I want to thank all you guys for your support this year and for your enduring support of the program over all of these years. Hopefully, Season 8 has lived up to the billing. I promised you all a few months back that the days of waiting three weeks for the next edition of BOA Audio were over And I'm pretty amazed when I look at this episode here, episode number 11 of season 8. We've already done 11 shows this season, and it's only been three months. So we are going along at a tremendous pace. And I really do appreciate the BOA Audio listeners who have supported us all this time. And like I said, hopefully your patience over the years is being rewarded as season 8 unfolds. Despite the fact that we keep eschewing BOA audio listener feedback, I definitely want to hear from all you folks out there. So let me give you the means to contact me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or just go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. Beyond that, you can also join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. And if you don't want to write all those letters down, just click the forum button at Banal of America. It is BOA's paranormal playground where we discuss the world of pop culture as well as esoterica. And if you've joined up recently and have not had your membership approved, just shoot me an email and I will take care of it post-haste. Sometimes those approvals fall through the cracks as I battle spam bots. Additionally, I am on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me via punching in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That will bring up my profile. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, please check out Benal of America on Facebook. That's where you're going to get the latest happenings from BOA if they aren't yet posted to the website. Just punch in Banal of America. You'll find it pretty simple. 
like us, and then follow along with the latest antics from BOA on Facebook. No matter how you reach out to me, folks, trust me, I do read all emails and correspondences that come to the BOA HQ, and I try to write everybody back as soon as possible. If you're still waiting on a response, sit tight. I will get back to you folks. Up next, please allow me to take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics guru, Jeremy Boston. Enormous thanks to all the BOA staff for all of your support this year as well. I hope all of you have a very Merry Christmas and a happy holiday season. And now comes the time in the program where I stand in front of your favorite store with a little red bucket and ring a bell asking for donations to the BOA franchise. I promise that will be the last holiday-themed BOA pun of the season. Stay tuned. I'll, I'll roll them out for you again next year. <laughs> With that said, though, please, if you can help us out, that would be awesome. How do you make a donation to Banal of America? It's very simple. Head on over to BOA and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, we've got you covered that way as well. You can simply write to Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And you can find the complete address at Benall of America under the PayPal button. If you do choose to mail us a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America because my bank is anal and they will not cash those donations. And please include some kind of correspondence so I can reach out to you and thank you for your donation. As always, folks, it bears repeating, no donation is too small and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, much like the holiday special, the guest is no surprise. It is the incomparable Greg Bishop making his return to BOA Audio for our annual Year in Review episode. I just spoke to Greg at length a couple of nights ago, and even in a private conversation, it is a fascinating back and forth, and I'm really looking forward to bringing that magic to the BOA Audio listeners once again on our Year in Review special. And what's exciting about this year's Year in Review special is, for the first time ever, the Year in Review is a live edition of BOA Audio. However, even though it is live, due to Greg's work schedule, due to my work schedule, and due to the holiday that is New Year's Eve, 
we're going to be coming at you at a very special start time. I cannot stress this one enough. I don't want folks trying to tune in at 9 p.m. That's not going to happen for the year in review episode. This one is going to be coming at you on December 31st, 2013, obviously. We're closing the book on the year, on New Year's Eve, but it's going to be coming at you at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. 2 p.m. Eastern. As I said, I cannot stress this enough. A very weird and rare live edition of BOA Audio coming at you in the afternoon. 2 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when you can tune in to the live BOA Audio Year in Review Spectacular featuring Greg Bishop. We're going to be talking about all the various happenings of 2013, not just in the world of ufology, but in cryptozoology, conspiracy, and esoterica in general. Since this is the weekend before Christmas, I have not even sat down to put together the notes for the year in review. Quite honestly, I'm waiting for the much harder-working folks out there to release their big stories of 2013 articles so I can start cherry-picking the best stories to discuss with Greg. It is one of the more controversial editions of the program every year. One year we upset the people in ufology. The next year somehow we upset people in the skeptical community. So let's see who we can upset on this year's Year in Review special. Probably all the folks who cannot listen to a show at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, most likely. But as is the way we do things with BOA Audio Season 8 live, shortly following the live edition of the program, the episode will be posted to BOA, so you'll be able to listen to the show very, very soon after we conclude the live edition of the program, in case you cannot tune in. Once again, that's coming at you December 31st at 2 p.m. Eastern. The UFO mystic himself, Greg Bishop, returns to BOA Audio for the always rousing Year in Review edition of the program. Be sure to tune in, my friends. And with all that said, it's time for me to go do some Christmas shopping and hang those stockings by the chimney with care. Thank you once again to Stanton Friedman for coming on the show and helping us celebrate the holiday season for the ninth year in a row. Thank you to the BOA Audio listeners who submitted questions for the father of modern-day ufology. Well done, folks. Awesome questions once again. And finally, big, big, huge thanks to all you folks out there. The hardcore BOA Audio listeners, you are ride or die, my friends, and I truly appreciate that. I cannot thank you enough for your enduring support of this program, still going strong after all these years, and it's thanks to the folks like you who provide the fuel for the BOA mothership. You are tremendous. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday Season. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your Esoteric Audio Playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening, 
and signing off.